Hello, little fires everywhere heads. LFE heads, Shakerites. Did we ever decide on a fan base name? Anyways, welcome back to the final episode of Little Fires Everywhere, the official podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Loftus, and we have a banger of a podcast finale for you today. Because if you're listening to this right after watching this series finale of Little Fires Everywhere, oh my word. I mean, there's no way to cover it in a spoiler-free way, but I was completely blown away by the final episode. Just really intense performances, incredible twist and turn writing, beautiful direction, just chef's kiss. Amazing stuff. Which is why, for our episode today, we wanted to do what we always do. Find out what happened behind the scenes from the people who made the show what it is. And today, you are in for an absolute treat. Only hitters for guests. We have the author of Little Fires Everywhere and producer of the show, Celeste Ng. We have the Little Fires Everywhere showrunner, head writer, and executive producer, Liz Tigelar. And we have the stars of the show. We're talking Carrie Washington, Reese Witherspoon, and Rosemary DeWitt. I know it's a lot of good stuff. And keep in mind, we were originally going to have a big to-do and a whole live event, but that was during the before times. And so for this interview, we are all on Zoom in full quarantine. So what follows is my interview with Carrie, Reese, and Liz. And if you did not know, Carrie and Reese are more than just the incredible leads of Little Fires Everywhere as Mia and Elena. They're also executive producers on the show. So their fingerprints and influence have been on this project since day one. Uh, We talk about the finale, building out the world of their characters, working together for the first time, and more. So let's take a listen. Welcome, Liz Tigelar, Carrie Washington, and Reese Witherspoon. All of our viewers and then listeners of the podcast have seen the finale, and I'm very interested to hear from all three of you. Is there any uh, viewer reaction that is like particularly like surprised you or touched you? I mean, even throughout uh, all of the episodes airing, Uh, Reese, what do you think? I mean, I think everything is so incredibly thoughtful and Mm -hmm. even people's strong, any kind of strong reactions you have to anything, even people hating Elena. It's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it makes me so proud of the work that we did. And we worked really hard to make sure the assumptions that you had about any character would be dismantled by (laughs) something two or three episodes later. So it really challenged your assumptions all the Mm -hmm. time. And that we really, Liz did such a beautiful job plotting that and, and being the architect of, you know, pulling people in and then pushing them away. And, um, it, it's just a, it's a beautiful sort of emotional jungle gym that people are going on. And I, I'm, I, I haven't gotten to see people's reactions to the um, finale yet, but I'm so excited. Yeah. The ending of the series is uh, slightly different from the ending of the book. And Liz, could you walk me through that decision-making process? One thing was clear, which was there's this very humongous thing that happens at the beginning of the book, which is this iconic house is on fire. The little fires everywhere. Yeah, fires everywhere. And you know, (laughs) in the beginning, kind of on the first page, that Izzy's the one who did it. So for a series, you know, it kind of begs the question, like, if you didn't know Izzy was the one who did it, but even if all things point to Izzy or the assumption is that it's Izzy, 
is there a overarching mystery to not knowing that answer that could be propulsive and compelling? Um, then it became this great challenge to think, well, obviously we know it could be Izzy, but if it wasn't Izzy, who could it be? And I think we went on a real journey with that challenge, which at first, you know, thinking what would be, who would be the most dramatic character that you would not expect to burn the house down, that would have to go the furthest and have the furthest arc, obviously felt like Elena. And that was what we kind of talked about at first, but I think all of us, Carrie Reese, um, Lauren and Plara, our producing partners and myself, we talked about this idea of like, is that real? Is that just too far for, for this woman to go? Would any adult do this? There's obviously something about it that's so, you can really buy a teenager doing it much more than you can, than a grown person would need to do that. And then as we, you know, went on our journey with it, I remember thinking like, who could it be? Would it be Lexi? Would it be Trip? Would it be Moody? And it didn't seem like it would be any one of them. But then this idea kind of struck me of, well, could it be all three? And what would it mean if it were all three? And could we take the spirit of the book, which is Izzy wanting to start a fire? And could it kind of take on a life of its own so that Izzy starts it and the kids finish what she started and they have their own reasons from their own arcs for like lighting these matches. For Carrie and Reese, I guess I'm interested in your reactions to where your characters land and, and where they might go from here. Carrie? I feel really grateful that both Mia and Elena, that they they're, they had to have their illusion of control ripped from them. That they both, there, there were real costs to, in the secrets that they kept, in the ways that they were living their lives, trying to control the world around them by controlling their children, that they both really had to, they were forced to let go of that. And I think that was so beautifully designed by Celeste in the book and then really just dimensionalized and, and glorified by Liz. It's just really so beautifully painted. Absolutely. At the end of the, the show, there's definitely a sense of hope that isn't necessarily in the book. Boy, I just, when I read the book, I bawled my eyes out. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. Like, hmm. you can't treat your children that way. <laughs> And I think, you know, this idea, I think we all kind of long for our mother to understand us, our mother or whoever the parent mm-hmm. is that raised you. You just, you want that, that unconditional acceptance and Izzy doesn't get it. There's a glimmer of hope that Elena holds the, the, the feather and says Izzy instead of Isabel. It's a big moment that Liz built in that it's like you're always longing for your parents to truly understand you mm-hmm. and, and not just to understand you, but accept you. And it comes, you know, that's a, for many, many people in this world, never happens. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I like this idea of Mia, um, you know, that car, like taking that car from place to place, that car was her everything. And literally driving that car was how she controlled Pearl's worldview. Um, And to say to Pearl, like, you get to decide where the car goes next. Um, and to be led to back to her home, even though she assumed that Pearl would want to find her dad, that she lets Pearl lead her somewhere equally uncomfortable and lets herself get out of the car to follow Pearl back into her her place of origin is really, I think, 
also hopeful. I really like the adjustments made from book Mia to show Mia. And I'm curious as to where some of those came about where um, part of it's just fleshing out her history more, but we, uh, you know, in the book, she doesn't have a sex life really of any kind. And that was changed for the series. And so where, where did that idea begin? A lot of that came from the writer's room and this, you know, Liz and this phenomenal room full of just, dynamic, intelligent, raw, courageous writers. And they decided early on that there was, you know, this sort of um, image throughout history and literature of, of Black women being asexual. And so they wanted to make sure that Mia, that there was some mystery around her sexuality and her sex life, but that it was embodied more. So a lot of those traces really came from the writer's room and their desire to have Mia be fully realized. On on your end, when you're kind of plugging into this character and preparing, where were you able to meet and understand her to build the performance? You know, I just had an experience of her when I read her in the novel. And so I just felt like I was constantly climbing toward that. Like there was a kind of a soul of an understanding of her that existed outside of me. That as I read the book, I, I saw her, I could smell her, I could hear her. And I was just constantly trying to work in my process to get close to that thing. Um, that was, that, that I felt was this combination of what I read on the page and who I was, the, the alchemy of that created this other thing outside me that I was just aiming for all the time. Down to even like taking photos and and like embodying her art life too, which is so amazing. Yeah, I got to take photography classes and learn to be a photographer because I feel like there were things I would discover about Mia even just from that learning process. And there were, you know, like, even the way that she engages with people that that her chosen art form, you know, like Reese and I, our chosen art form is to like take on somebody else's entire emotional and psychological being and like <laughs> surrender ourselves to live in somebody else's shoes and brain. And, and Mia's chosen form of artwork was really about like being on the outside, observing, capturing, manipulating not giving herself fully over, but trying to transform how you see as opposed to transforming how I, you know, how I see. So just things like that that could help me understand how she thinks. For Reese, I'm interested in, in how you were able to find a connection and build out uh, a lot of depth in Elena as well, where when we meet her, she's kind of this quintessential upper crust white housewife. And then as the layers are, are more exposed, she has this very rich inner life? What what drew you to her and how did you build out that character? I always look at characters that we see, you know, you can read it very one-dimensionally and, mm -hmm. and really see her as this very rigid person from a place and a time. But I always think of characters, when I meet people who are so rigid in their ideology, I'm always fascinated with digging deeper. Where does that, where does that come from? Where, what is that? Where did that ideology come from? There's something sort of interesting about that to me too. This sense of entitlement, sense of protecting a bubble that 
she grew up in and that her children will grow up in, it's inevitable that the world comes in. And what happens to someone who has that force field, almost like a impenetrable idea of um, what is right and what is good. And it's all in the book. I mean, it's beautifully said in the book, um, you know, that she believes that people who behave the way that Mia does create chaos and they can burn the whole world to the ground. Um, and then you see, obviously, something else happens. But um, it's sort of, a, it was fascinating. I have deep, tender thoughts about her as well. <laughs> you have to, in order to get inside these things, as, as Gary said, you have to have, you have to have compassion and, and curiosity. And I, I will say too, you know, for people who th- you know, think of her as just they kind of love to hate her, which I totally get that too. Right. There, there are elements of it, of deep loss and sadness of her own identity. She was never allowed to explore her identity. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it is kind of incredible over the course of the series to not just see so distinctly who Elena and who Mia are, but that they end up on the opposite ends of the the conflict of the adoption storyline and of Mei Ling. And you, you know, no matter who you agree with, you fully understand where they're coming from and why they're coming from that place. And that storyline, I mean, for just me as a viewer, was one of the most fascinating and challenging that that I've seen in TV in a long time. And so as uh, speaking as executive producers as well and as mothers, how how was navigating that storyline for everybody over the course of production? Well, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I've had the best conversations about it with people. I think it was always meant to elicit conversation and I think there isn't a right or wrong or how we feel about like I don't know, I would vacillate wildly between who that baby would thrive with, you know? And I think people have said to me, but you know, what did the parents do wrong? I mean, what does that woman want the baby back? And, mm-hmm. and then you go, okay, well, but isn't her biological, it's her biological child. What would, but, 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 and it's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. There was one day on set. It was very, I think it was her first day. She was working little baby Molly and um, yeah. the call sheet said um, Mirabelle. And I saw, I heard some folks on set reacting. Um, And so I went to our amazingly sensitive, phenomenal line producer, Mary Howard, um, who I worked with on Scandal for seven seasons. Um, And I said, I think we need to change it. I think, and we started labeling it as baby M on the call sheet because like whether to put Mei Ling or Maribel on the call sheet was a big deal. Yeah. It's Paul. I mean, it's been fascinating. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people, even just in the hair and makeup trailer, people were like, why is it, why is it Mirabelle? And I was like, oh, uh, well, uh, (laughs) let me go see what I can do about that. (laughs) (laughs) That story, like, cuts to the quick of what you believe. Like, like people hear that Mm. story or see that story and you have an immediate gut instinct based on not necessarily things as negative as prejudices or even as um, obvious as biases, but just um, just based on your own life and circumstances, you will have a gut reaction to that story. I am an adopted kid. When I opened up that book and started reading, I was like, 
the McCulloughs are the parents. There's no way you can't have a, a little mm. baby can't have been with her parents for 10 months and then be ripped away. But of course, what you do then as the, and that's how I came into the room. Other writers came in in the complete opposite way. And I will say by the time we got done with the story, not that our paths had crisscrossed in that we were saying the polar opposite thing, mm -hmm. but I could no longer say that that was the McCullough's baby. Because once you understand the circumstances in which BB gave, had to give up her child, you can't say she should be penalized for circumstances that are beyond her control. Mm -hmm. Now that the whole series has aired, what do you hope that viewers take away from having watched Little Fires Everywhere? I had to train for this movie once where I was with NCAA multiple time champion softball coach from UCLA. I mean, I learned so much from this woman, y'all, in four months. I, it was <laughs> like, she was like another mother to me in certain ways. I, she said something so profound to me. She said, what parents don't realize is that their children's minds aren't, aren't a dry erase board. Like you don't get to say something and then take it away. You write on your child's mind with a Sharpie. And mm. It was so profound when she said it to me. I had a, a little, I had a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And she said, be so careful with what you tell them about who they are, who you are, what is possible. And I always taken that to heart. And I think that's, that, that's one thing. There's so many things in this show, but I do think be, you know, that, that is a cautionary tale. Be, be thoughtful of the things that you say to your children because they, they take them in it's becomes, it's very real for them. A phrase that I love is don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. This idea that, you know, you just don't know what's going on for other people. And I love that particularly in episode six, you really learned that Mia and Elena are much more similar than anyone. They were like each other <laughs> in, their, in their younger lives. I, I think it's so important for us, particularly now, to have this understanding that there's more going on for people than we could have imagined. And that that could be a reason for us to be more patient with each other and accepting of one another rather than more kind of fearful and judgmental of one another. Absolutely. I think there's this idea that like, look, these two women were so similar. Um, I mean, so different in so many ways, but similar in that they fiercely wanted to do right. They didn't see what they were doing that was so destructive. But the point is you teach your children what you know, and you hope that your children are going to take that and be even better than you were. And I think what's so beautiful about that, and, and then by that, you are raising them to be better, even with the good and the bad. And what I think so beautiful about this story is the end result is these two women raised these brave kids to not only transform their lives, but to go back and to transform the lives of their own mothers to give them hope and give them what they're longing for, which is certain kinds of freedom and choice. And that's beautiful. I just hope that this is a conversation for people, you know, and, and, and that they, if you identify as one character that you're seeing the reality of a different character and 
I think that's the real beauty of this show. I think it is really eye-opening to, you know, as we become even more squished into our little bubbles, remember there's, there's others, there's so many different people out there doing the best they can with what they've got where they are. Well, thank all three of you so much for joining us and congratulations on such a beautiful show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you again to legends, Carrie Washington, Reese Witherspoon, and Liz Tigelar. I now know what it feels like to be starstruck over Zoom. And for the record, yes, of course, I did uh, fully dress up because I'm a professional. But yes, total honor, and, and I can't wait to see how Reese and Carrie collaborate next, question mark. But wait, listeners, there is more. In addition to Reese and Carrie, Liz Tigelar and I got to speak with Rosemary DeWitt, who plays Linda, Mei-Ling's adoptive mother in the Little Fires Everywhere series. And she made some time out of her busy quarantine schedule to catch up with us after the finale of the show aired on Hulu. Rosemary DeWitt is a veteran actress and an adoptive mother herself in real life. So she has some truly amazing insight into Linda's storyline and character. And so I was very thrilled to speak to her about that, the finale of the show, and more. Let's listen to our conversation. Rosemary, Liz, hello. Thank you for joining us in in quarantine. So, Rosemary, what was your reaction to the finale of of the story and particularly where, where Linda ends. I, I appreciated that uh, it, for me, it was surprising the ending and it was complicated. And especially as far as the storyline that I was involved in, Mailing has two mothers and you know, that's there, that's left standing at the end of the, the show. Going back to when you first read the book, what drew you to this part and to this project? I was really also, for me, I think I was drawn into Linda's journey with her sort of pregnancy and child loss because I think that often gets swept under the rug, you know, and it it often defines a mother, not only how she builds her family often, but how um, she then parents. So that's really what pulled me in to it. Like that's what was so heartbreaking to me was when she had to give birth to a stillborn baby. And then, you know, and she definitely, it's what drives the fight of just not being able to endure that loss again. Were there any storylines, whether it was yours or others that were particularly challenging? We've like all these different stories of um, actors and crew members going in with one uh, opinion on an issue and then coming out with like, oh God, I don't know. I was so moved by the young performers on our show. Like they're all so talented. And for me, when I watched the show, I thought the breakup scene with Elena's eldest daughter and her boyfriend, like that just broke my heart. You know, like you realize like a lot of people's hearts are in the right places and the execution's terrible or they were taught, you know, maybe values that were suspect or, you know, or they're just all working through and, and just in general, the kids, you know, the children in the story just are really struggling to have their own identity. Liz? And I can speak a little bit to just the kind of the Linda in the book and then how yeah. Rose came in and like, I think even elevated and deepened and made her even more nuanced. I think the Linda in the book, like her blind spots were glaring 
You do uh, not. I did not like Book Linda at yeah, all. I don't think you yeah. root for Book Linda. Yeah. <laughs> when Rose came in, I mean, she is so winning and root forable <laughs> anyway, but I felt like she brought this this humanity to this character and a care to this character. This was one of those where I never saw a writer work harder on a script in my life. Like the script was never finished and anything that popped up in the courtroom or any discovery or if Carrie improvised a line or said a line a certain way and that could change the whole like where it landed and then we could go over and whisper by the monitor and then say, I think Linda has to have a retort to that when she takes the stand. And Mm -hmm. so it was always very much an alive, vital um, process. And I think that really helped infuse it with a lot of truth. Because um, you both have experiences with adoption in your actual lives as well. uh, I'm curious about that scene in particular of how did you approach that scene? The whole storyline has been polarizing and, and challenging for viewers, but that is where kind of it all climaxes. How did you prepare for that on, on the writer's side for you, Liz, and then for, for your performance? I will say that courtroom scene, as long as it was, it could have been twice as long. It doesn't feel long, though. It, it flies by, yeah. It was one of our longer scenes. You know, I think the Lexi Bryan breakup was our longest scene of the series. And the courtroom scenes were probably right up there with the longer sequences. And I think it was because there was so much. To me, there was a balance of all the things we wanted to get across. And then there was a structural balance and arc to the scene that had to be like story balance. You want like a roller coaster, not like a EKG. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible. Like, what were you pulling from and and how did you prepare for a scene that like, it's just so intense? Well, the writing was so good on our show. It would, so the prep was usually really easy. What was tricky it was more the mindset of 1997 to now and what, like you said, both Liz and I have real life experience with adoption and just how much resource there is now and how much we've learned. And it was just kind of keeping that um, 1997 mindset and not judging it and not making the characters seem not smart or ignorant just because we've come so far, you know, around transparency and child's rights and truth, you know, and, and, Um, So that was just tricky, just never to sort of tip it too hard because, you know, she did, Linda did have to have a lot of sort of slip ups, like she had a lot of time to prepare for this trial. And at the same time, she still had to have her blind spots. You know what I mean? Like she couldn't become enlightened in that moment, you know, (laughs) who who knows what, where she'll be um, after, you know, now that this audience knows what, what happens, like who knows what she'll take away from the experience. But in that moment, she can't know what she doesn't know. So that was always, that was the delicate balance for just not tipping it. For you, Rose, if you could now go to the Linda character in 97 and, and tell her anything, any, any hot tips, um, (laughs) I guess because my experience as an adoptive mom is so different, I would say that there is enough room for everyone at the table that, you know, you're, you're, you don't have to fear losing your child by having too many people love them. 
it's a it's a really amazing, crazy, rich, complex landscape. So there's all these factors, socioeconomic and privilege that are that are um, exacerbating it. But yeah, I would just tell her that, you know, you don't have to be so scared. And then of course, you know, we have all these other forces. We have Mia's doing what Elaine is doing, which is ratcheting up the tension for these, these poor women. Yeah, absolutely. Now that the series has aired and viewers have gone on the full journey with you, Liz, what are you hoping that people take away from, um, from this series, from your baby? There's a lot of things. I mean, one thing is what we're talking about, which is there is no, there is no perfect mother. Um, and we would never, we never ask the question, like, who's the perfect father? Who's the better father? Who's the more deserving father? Like, this is language that is, is unique to the predicament of mothers. Like, the way we judge mothers is so harshly. And in essence, society tells us that to be good mothers, we have to put every other part of ourselves away, um, that all of that is rivaling our ability to be good mothers instead of fueling how we mother. And so, I, you know, there are a million takeaways I could think of from the show, but I think that's one of them, that, that the question of who's a better mother is, is the problem. <laughs> Same question to you, Rose. What What are you hoping that people take away from the show at large and, and also just Linda's storyline and, and journey? I always hope that an audience sees themselves in some of the characters or, or feel seen. I really responded as well to Mia's storyline, just to that balance of the mother and the artist. Um, it definitely, like, just seeing all the struggle and the fight, it, we could all just, you know what I mean? Like yeah. chill out just a little bit. Like our kids are going to be okay. Thank you so much, Rose. Thank you. Thanks again to Liz Tigelar and to Rosemary DeWitt for her time and her incredible, deeply moving performance. And in the interest of things going full circle, much like the series itself, I'd like to finish Little Fires Everywhere, the podcast with the woman who started it all. Celeste Ng, who wrote the novel and later was a producer on the limited series. This is an interview that Liz Tegelar and I did with Celeste Ng from shortly before the series began airing. And now that everybody knows how the series ends, I am excited to share some of Celeste's thoughts on episode eight. So let's go back in time and take a listen. I think Lauren brought up the idea that you might shift how the in the very, very end of the show plays out versus the book. And I was a little bit apprehensive, but I also thought, okay, this is, it should be its own thing. I kind of like the idea that it might go differently. Um, and so I was open to that. And there were a couple of different ideas floating around. And I remember that I didn't actually know what you had decided. So I, I didn't know until pretty late whether it was going to be exactly like it was in the book, whether it was going to be, you know, sort of idea number one you'd had or idea number two. Mm -hmm. And Lauren actually said, don't let anyone spoil it for you. Wait, wait until you see it on the screen. And so one of the big changes is that question of who set the fire. Right. Um, in the book, it's, you know, I tell you in the first sentence that Izzy set the fire and everybody kind of assumes Izzy set the fire and then Izzy set the fire. Um, this is because I'm, I'm not a mystery writer. Um, I, I, it's pretty straightforward in the first sentence, you know, Izzy burned the house down. Everyone assumes Izzy burned the house down. And then at the end, Izzy burned the house down. And in the show, 
it's much more open. At the very beginning, you don't know who burned the house down. And actually that present moment at the beginning of the show ends with, you know, do you know anyone who would do this? And that's kind of the question that's hanging over the show. And Liz, I really like the choice that you all made to change how it goes. I don't know if you want to talk about how you landed on that and and why you decided to do it. Yeah, well, we felt like, you know, in reading it, I definitely, I mean, I felt a couple ways about it. One is I felt like it was maybe worth considering not surprising the audience completely, but adding some elements where they thought it was going in one direction and then was going in another direction. I think, you know, just thinking about, again, in, in a book, it's kind of one thing, but in thinking about adapting a series, you know, a central mystery can be a propellant good thing to have. And of course, in this book, I, or in this adaptation and the book, I feel like in the book, you have the mystery of Mia's secret, of right. why she's helping BB. Um, and of of why she came to this town in the first place and why she moves around. So you have an underlying secret of the book. Um, but we don't know that secret right away in the teaser of the pilot. And right. so we felt like not answering the question, leaving it open-ended of who would do this, would create one propellant mystery in the book only to reveal slowly another building mystery. But then also... I liked the idea of honoring the book in the way of, yeah, everyone thinks it's Izzy. You know, Lou thinks it's Izzy. Right. Um, it, it, we're, we're sort of led to think that it's Izzy because she seems like the obvious suspect, right? She, she, she singes her hair in the first episode, right? We, there's, we see her playing with fire. There's all these clues. I like not only surprising the audience in some ways, but I feel like what you came up with makes sense for the show as it's put together and as you get to see everybody's strands a little bit more developed that in some ways everybody in that house had a reason to to want to kind of start things over everybody in that house had this sort of simmering resentment that they needed to kind of get out um, and let burn out in a way and metaphorically I like the idea that Izzy has been this outcast in her family she has never felt like they've supported her or that they understand her and by the end of the show when you see her siblings kind of acting in solidarity it's almost like they are apologizing to her it's almost like they are saying you know now we get you in some ways it's almost like they're all standing together and I really liked that idea that in the show because Izzy's arc is sort of more clearly defined um through the stories about her sexuality and the scenes of her kind of arguing with her mother that her siblings have finally understood her in a way that they hadn't understood her before. Exactly. And so then by the end, you think, okay, if this kid has been isolated and has been an island in this family, except for Moody and really her connection with her father, which was also something we really wanted, then we thought, how can then at the end, the siblings really change to see how Izzy has felt? How do they see their family through Izzy's eyes? And how do they see themselves through Izzy's eyes? And I thought about this kid who felt so adrift and this idea that they would do this as almost like a smoke signal, like this idea of like, we're going to make it safe for you. Like we are, yeah. we are a unit, like 
we are going to be better than our parents were, which is what any new generation thinks. And then I also really love telling a story. Well, two things. One, that Elena takes responsibility for starting this fire. Not that she literally means I should be I, prosecuted. I love that. But that she she recognizes that ultimately the responsibility kind of comes to her. Right. That all of the things that have led all of her children to to kind of to, to do this, really at a certain point, it's rooted in her. And there is that sort of moment of of sort of like delayed realization, which really, I mean, it's it's one moment, right, in, in real time, but it spans the whole show. It goes from the very opening moments to the very closing moments of the show. That's how she realizes that she has been sort of the architect of, of her own destruction in that way. I think it's brilliant. And we talked about that idea of that space between when he asks the question and when she gives her answer as her memory. And yeah. that this whole show has been seen through the lens of her memory and understanding that she started the fire. And I think there's a great like kind of into the woods quality of it where it doesn't make anyone solely responsible, but everybody is accountable because you know what? Bill started that fire too. And so did Mia by coming to this town. And so did Pearl. And so did all those kids and everybody started. And so did Elena's mother by being her mother. And, and I think that was, it felt, um, it felt global and it felt like this kind of umbrella, like thematic umbrella that could be over the whole show. Yeah. It'll, I think it'll be really fun, too, for people who have seen the book to, in some ways, be be surprised by this in the same way that the characters, I think, are surprised by that. And and it'll be fun for them also sort of to go, OK, well, you know, why did they do that? To think about what that means and, and all of the sort of ramifications it has for the show. It is this moment of solidarity that doesn't happen in the book. In the book, Izzy is really much more alone. I think her brothers and sisters maybe get her, but she doesn't know that they do. And in this in the show, it's sort of gratifying that there is this this moment where she realizes that they're with her and that they support her and that she isn't maybe as alone as she thought she was. Thank you again to Liz Tigelar and Celeste Ng, as well as Rosemary DeWitt, Reese Witherspoon, and Carrie Washington. And my gosh, everybody, that marks the end of Little Fires Everywhere, the official podcast. I've been your host, Jamie Loftus, and I want to thank you and everyone for taking this behind the scenes journey with us to this incredible limited series. You can still follow us for all things Little Fires Everywhere in terms of updates at Little Fires Hulu. And until next time, we'll always have Shaker in 1997. Bye.